I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. There's been a lot of gloom and doom in Washington, D.C., and here in the Fintech Beat studios, as the coronavirus has upended the health and economy of not only the United States, but also other countries around the world. So we wanted to be optimistic today and to look forward with solutions as to where and how fintech might be positioned to alleviate the misery felt by so many people around the world. Now, to get this kind of conversation started, you need smart, widely read people comfortable across the ecosystem. And in that vein, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Linda Zhang and Daniel Gorfine. Now, Dan was previously the Chief Innovation Officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and has now launched his own fintech advisory firm and is the founding director of the Digital Dollar Project. Linda, a veteran of the Federal Reserve, where she took a lead on open banking projects with the Basel Committee, is now the global head of policy for Transparent Systems. Now, the point of this podcast is really simple. Get two of the smartest people in the space together to brainstorm some ideas for you, our listeners, for regulators, and the industry. All with the objective of saving that money. Dan, Linda, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to be on with you again, and same to you as well, Linda. Yeah, same here. Thanks, Chris. Fintech has uh, been in the news really a surprising amount, given everything that's happening in the world, with some firms hoping to uh, access congressional bailout facilities, while other firms are seeking to become players in dispersing uh, federal aid to to, to other cash-strapped companies and businesses, which can arguably send mixed signals to the public. What does this tell you about the kinds of roles uh, fintech can uh, and cannot play in assisting the economy in an age of the coronavirus? Thanks, Chris. Uh, That's a great first question. So I'm going to try to unpack that and take it in a few different parts here. So, you know, the first part you're asking is that, is there some kind of a tension with the idea of financial support from the government at the same time as some fintechs might be looking to distribute aid? And does that create a mixed message? You know, I... I don't think it really does send a mixed message. The the reality is, given the current crisis, many types of entities are struggling today. And that can range from Main Street small businesses to market participants to banks, uh, all the way to fintechs. I mean, look, in the current environment, there are many banks that are currently seeking support or are being supported by the government. And at the same time, they're responsible for getting funds out. Um, Some of that relief might be by way of access to the Fed discount window for emergency funds. um, And there's all kinds of regulatory relief being granted to banks and financial institutions. So in the same vein, you know, many fintechs are non-banks, but they do provide essential financial services. Uh, You know, they're still recognized by our regulatory system, frequently at the state level, frequently as money transmitters. Um, But nevertheless, it's really important that these types of entities are able to provide services during a black swan event uh, like the coronavirus. I think that's just sound policy. Now, to the second part of your question regarding the role that fintech can play during the crisis, 
you know, the reality is, is that technology is a, in financial services is a, is a tool that can be used to solve certain problems. You know, when we talk about solutions and you think about technology, you're usually looking at a number of elements, including speed, precision in terms of targeting services and offerings, efficiency in terms of operations and costs, access and inclusion, and then scalability. So these are things that that fintechs can bring to the table. Of course, that alone is not a panacea. I mean, you've got to direct these tools to good use, and they're not going to single-handedly solve for every challenge. But there's no doubt in my mind that digital infrastructure does provide certain opportunities, enhance resiliency, and functionality during a crisis. I do think when you think uh, are looking for emergency lending services, payment services, things like crowdfunding, there are a lot of different areas where fintechs um, can really help to identify where funds are needed and deploy those funds rapidly. So I, I think there are areas where fintech can provide a lot of support, um, and sometimes that's going to require them being supported by government in the first place. So, Linda, do you think that 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 ultimately uh, fintechs, because they're already embedded in the uh, both uh, market but also regulatory structure, that they're going to have to uh, play a, a role. And, and indeed, you look at other kinds of actors, including banks. Um, you spend a lot of time over at the Fed who are getting assistance and yet who are also uh, playing a role in helping to assist in, in alleviating economic pain. Definitely agree with Dan. Um, really see this as a new opportunity for fintechs. But uh, before opining um, on that, Point, uh, I want to just say this is an unprecedented public health crisis. I don't think fintechs can make a significant impact in that regard, but it's now all hands on deck. And fintechs, I think, are best positioned to think outside the box. Um, they're not only creative, but they're also resourceful and nimble, and their ability to move quickly and adapt will help the economy down the road. Um, but I am expecting a paradigm shift in our financial system and economy. Um, but with such a shift, comes new opportunities for ways of conducting business. You know, uh, not only are we moving toward a distributed financial system, but many of us are now forced to work in a distributed way from home. Like, for example, this podcast, we are all dialing in from our respective homes. And um, it's already estimated that 34% of our jobs can probably be done from home. So this way of working will not only change the economy, but it will also reinforce the decentralization forces that are already in play in our financial service system. So, Linda, I think this is a really good point. You're noting that there are massive changes going on that involve uh, the restructuring of not only commerce, but financial services. So what are the lessons we're learning as to where um, these kinds of applications are, are playing themselves out? Well, I'm seeing this is going to be a major structural opportunity for fintechs. Um, in Europe, for example, they're already seeing a 72% uptick in the use of fintech service apps um, through open banking. So, you know, we're seeing already a huge increase um, in open banking services in Europe. I'm expecting that will happen here in the U.S. as well. And, you know, how can, you know, open banking and the sharing of customer permission data also help um, I see like three immediate uses right now for the COVID-19 crisis. Um, online lending is is one tool. Uh, 
faster digital payments is another tool. And finally, uh, um, tools to, that we can use to verify identity and income quickly um, will play a really important role. In the UK, for example, um, the UK government um, is planning on providing two-thirds coverage of lost pay to all full-time employees who've lost their jobs. Um, definitely not the case here. Uh, but the problem in the UK is uh, gig workers and the self-employed are not salaried and cannot prove that they were fully employed. So a number of UK fintechs like Funted and Credit Kudos um, and 14 others, um, they've joined forces to create what they are uh, calling um, COVID ID. Um, it's an app that the self-employed can can open up and generate proof of income, um, pulling you know uh, uh, data from all their different income sources. Yeah, just to add into what Linda was just saying, and Chris, back to your your last question. I mean, I, I want to start by agreeing that there will be kind of a renewed focus on this topic of digital infrastructure. And before even talking about fintech services, I'm going to take a further step back. I think we're now starting to understand the benefits of capacity of our current compute infrastructure. So things like cloud are demonstrating why that's so important to have scalable supply um, of, of just overall computing storage and service capacity. Then you start thinking a little bit about like, what was this, all this talk about 5G and is it, why was that important? Well, now I think we're starting to see that having the throughput and having the speed to be able to, to process all of these different applications we're talking about is going to be incredibly important. Uh, to Linda's point, I completely agree that digital identity um, is going to be very, very important going forward. And we're going to have to figure out how we create systems that allow us to port a digital identity even faster. And then just overall, what's going to be running through these systems is going to be data. So I think we should come back to that that point on, on how do we make sure that people understand how their data is being used, how they can control the movement of that data. All of those things are going to be really important and wrapped up in this digital infrastructure conversation. To the point of, you know, what are the, the most uh, applicable tools from a fintech perspective that we could deploy right now? I completely agree with Linda that the lending um, application makes a lot of sense. You know, online lenders do three things incredibly well. They can verify identity quickly. They can underwrite cash flows to make sure, like, for example, in the small business context, that a small business is viable. And they can deploy funds very quickly. So when you think about partnering with existing government emergency funding programs, that seems to be a great application. I do also think that crowdfunding is an area that we should continue to explore and do so in the near term. I mean, not just donation crowdfunding, which I think has a lot of application today, but also revisiting, you know, Chris, you and I used to talk years ago about crowd investing under the Jobs Act. And it's really interesting to see a number of platforms today, WeFunder, SeedInvest, you know, that, that allow for actual community investments in local brick and mortar Main Street small businesses. I saw that a couple of, of these platforms are now trying to structure very, very low interest investment notes where the community would be able to support a local small business. So you, you could imagine these portals springing up in, in areas around the U.S. that are especially hard hit by the coronavirus. And that's another really compelling way to get capital quickly uh, to small businesses that are in need. And it's interesting, too, to think how that a process could help ferret out fraud because in order to raise investment capital, there are filings that are required with the SEC. 
They're relatively lightweight, but still the fact that you're filing with the SEC and subject to fraud provisions um, could be a way to help suss out and ferret out fraud that may otherwise run through certain types of donation models. So I think that's another area that I'd like to see a little bit more policy focus as we move you know, beyond kind of the emergency SBA Treasury lending programs, thinking a little bit more about how we supplement that with things like crowd investing. Linda? Picking up on Dan's comments on SME lending, uh, you started to mention open banking, something that uh, obviously we've talked a good deal about on this podcast. What is it precisely about open banking that may prove especially helpful in an age of COVID-19? Well, let's first drill down on the first use case that I mentioned, which was uh, fintech online lending. So, you know, online fintech lenders on average can approve a loan application in days, even minutes. And they can do this by quickly pulling data about you from a number of sources, you know, not only your credit scores, but also your bank accounts. And then in addition to those traditional sources, they can also pull info about you from alternative sources, such as, you know, transaction cash flow from point of sale machines, um, your credit card records real estate and property records, and even your social media accounts. Just last week, Congress approved $17 billion to existing and new small business um, administration borrowers, which I'll call SBA borrowers. I mean, that's 17 times more than the Small Business Administration had guaranteed in its typical Section 7A loans last year. Um, This is great news because now SBA will cover all loan payments for six months and under the new Paycheck Protection Program, loans can be forgiven as long as a small business maintains its payroll. But Chris, do you know how long it takes for a typical SBA loan process? Uh, so I assume you mean the time it takes to make an application, get a review, um, at least of the loan, and then get the money into my bank account. Uh, I have no idea. Six weeks? Uh, how long? Well, it usually... So first of all, you have to go to, you know, you have to find a special SBA lender. Um, there are a number of banks and online lenders who specialize in SBA loans. And then you have to provide your loan history about your small business and also about yourself because you're the small business owner. And then the whole loan review process takes at least one month and then maybe as wow. long as six months before you get any money in your bank account. Yeah, that's... That's that's probably not going to work right now. And this is pre-COVID-19. So if you're a local coffee shop or, or barber shop that's been forced to stay shut, I, mean, I really doubt you can wait even one month, much less six months. I think this is a time for fintechs to step up. Online lenders generally have more streamlined application processes that you can fill out online from home. So you don't have to go to your local bank branch and meet with a local banker. Also, online fintech lenders have the ability to quickly pull your bank account info, your tax info, your cash flow, et cetera, about your small business and yourself and make credit decisions in a matter of days and even as quickly as 15 minutes, depending on the loan product and your credit profile. Interesting. Well, have we seen any of this in action uh, anywhere in the world, especially when it comes to fintech firms assisting in government-assisted lending to uh, COVID-stricken companies? So in the UK, um, four different uh, uh, fintech uh, companies, um, Trade Ledger, which is a digital lending platform, Wiser Funding, which is a digital 
small, medium enterprise credit scoring platform, Nimbla, a trade credit insurance provider, and North Row, which is a remote client onboarding platform. These four fintechs have joined forces to provide an origination and underwriting platform for businesses to access uh, the COVID-19 funds um, being offered by the UK government. And I think our fintech should start thinking about doing something similar for deploying CARE Act funds. SBA should also um, uh, uh, figure out where they can be flexible. You know, if you add on the fees, uh, et cetera, that online lenders charge, the APR for some of these online fintech lenders can be as high as 50 to 68%. But I argue the total cost for short-term 50 to 70% APR loans could end up being less costly to a small business than a longer-term loan um, at a lower APR, and certainly better than filing for bankruptcy. Um, but currently, SBA loans uh, go from five to 25 years. And I'm not sure if some of these businesses are, are actually that interested in borrowing for that long. Dan, you know, one one thing that I don't hear much about are private cryptocurrencies, right? I mean, when we were beginning this year, um, the question, you know, the entire debate was of, of fintech was almost getting monopolized by this question of cryptocurrencies, in part because of, of Libra and Facebook's um, desire to roll out a, a, a private cryptocurrency. Um, and, you know, since then, the only thing really that you're hearing every day sort of about in the world of crypto isn't on the, on the private end, but it's on the public end, you know, with, with central bank digital currencies and, you know, the desire or the in, potential interest of the government getting in, involved here. And, and obviously, you've been at the forefront of that, um, starting up your uh, the, the digital dollar uh, project. And I'm happy, of course, to work with you on that, on that project, uh, along with uh, CFTC Chairman uh, Christopher Giancarlo and, and Accenture, sort of thinking through and setting up this nonprofit to think through how central banks can do it. To what degree... Does this pandemic inform how people think through this whole question and the utility of a central bank digital currency? Yeah, that's a great question. And we saw a lot of activity actually on Capitol Hill in the last couple of weeks. And there was some proposed legislative language that dealt with an idea of you know, creating new types of electronic uh, accounts. There was language that actually referred to it as a digital dollar. And so then we get into a little bit of a, of a definitional question and issue there. I mean, I, 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 what it looks like to me is what was really being proposed was more along the lines of creating these kind of electronic uh, cash accounts, uh, if you will. There were some folks talking about direct access to Fed accounts for individuals. I mean, all of this with, with, with the right view of saying, is there a way to get money in a targeted fashion to people who need that money you know, more efficiently at less cost? Um, and in a more targeted fashion. I think that those are the right questions to be asking. You know, there's, a, in my view, a big distinction between that type of, uh, of concept versus, you know, what would be viewed as a true central bank digital currency where you'd effectively be tokenizing uh, a central bank liability. Um, that, that's a different construct. That's a different set of, uh, of, of infrastructures, if you will. Uh, so, so a lot here is going to be around really understanding and learning distinctions between different types of models. 
Um, my, my view is that it would be better suited tackling some of these really big questions, not necessarily in a crisis mode. And I think that's in part why some of that legislative language uh, was not included in final provisions is that, you know, to tokenize the U.S. dollar is a major undertaking. And there are a lot of design choices and considerations um, that need to be worked through. And so it's not something you should do in a hasty fashion. You know, that being said, this is definitely raising the issue. And I think coming out of this crisis, there will be a lot more thought given to different ways you can more effectively and efficiently move all types of assets, including money. Um, to flip over to you, to how you started the question, though, of what's going on in kind of the private uh, side or in the crypto sphere, um, right? I mean, there's been a little bit less focus uh, during the crisis. The one thing I would highlight, though, which I think is really interesting, and I don't have you know the the, the data or any full uh, analysis yet, but looking at things like Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin obviously is where a lot of this focus on crypto all started. It's an asset that's been around now for over 10 years. Um, and there are a lot of people who had started making arguments uh, as to this being a new type of digital safe haven asset. And it's been interesting. I mean, from my you know, anecdotal and observational view, I think Bitcoin has certainly sold off a bit along with a lot of other assets. But interestingly enough, um, you, you know, people were selling treasuries to move to cash. People were selling gold to move to cash for a period. The fact that Bitcoin has actually held up reasonably well, I think is interesting. And I think it's noteworthy. I mean, it takes a lot of time for something to become a true safe haven. Um, but I think there will be a lot of analysis on this issue coming out of the crisis as well. Is it, have we, what have we seen in crypto? Did it hold up well um, during a time where people were scared and there was a lot of moving money into true safe haven, you know, dollar-based assets or just cash itself? You know, how did it, how did it hold up? Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll have some of that analysis taking place when the dust settles here. That will be a fascinating discussion. Uh, well, with that said, let's indeed look forward as we wrap up uh, our conversation here. We've talked about a lot of different things, open banking, fintech lending, Bitcoin, central bank digital currencies. Dan, is there a particular area of the ecosystem that, in your view, needs special attention from the market or regulators in order to orient uh, financial services in a way to uh, enable sustainable growth? Um perhaps not during the outbreak, but then at least right after uh, the virus burns itself out or the dust settles and the economy needs to be as efficient and as as effective as possible uh, to get back up uh, on its feet? So that's a great final question. And I think to bring it all back, I mean, we've been talking a lot about digital infrastructure. And then I want to then jump and say that fintech, and this should become very clear post-crisis, fintech is no longer this siloed separate concept. It's, it's the way that our economy runs today. Technology is going to power financial services. Um, so I think the sooner we understand that and make sure that our regulatory frameworks and approaches properly contemplate that world, and we don't view fintech as a separate area, one that, that, that requires kind of unique treatment, but instead we start thinking about how we holistically foster technology in a constructive and productive way so that it benefits our economy, it uh, benefits end users and consumers, um, the, the, the faster we'll be able to truly embrace all of the, the benefits that tech can bring. So I think that's going to be one of the consequences of this, is that at, at some point, whether it's in the next year or the next five years, I don't know if we're even going to be on the program with you, Chris, saying the term fintech. It's just going to be what, how we expect 
our financial services to be provided. Uh, traditional banks will have to adapt. Some will, some won't. Um, new fintech providers are going to become either part of the banking system or under kind of expanded understandings of what financial services providers look like. Um, so I think the sooner that we come to that realization, the better in terms of formulating sound policy that captures the world where it actually is, not where it was you know, 20, 30 years ago. Well, Linda Dent, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is really interesting. Gives us a little bit of hope. And uh, here's to a brighter day. Thanks so much, Chris. Nothing's wrong, even in these turbulent times, with thinking about life after the crisis, confident that one way or another, these turbulent times will pass. But optimism is best when paired with pragmatism. And one of the important rules for fintechs and the regulatory community will be thinking about how to take the best of what fintech has to offer, and quickly applying those strengths to addressing the pressing needs facing the country and indeed the world. This will be easier said than done, but I have the firm belief that the talent is here to meet the demands of the moment. The question will be whether that talent can be marshaled in time. And let's hope so. Fintech listeners stay safe and indoors. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.